Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. This is Susan Thompson of Colgate University, a host on New Books and African Studies, a channel on the New Books Network. Thanks for tuning in today. My guest is a colleague and a friend. Jacob Bundy is Associate Professor of Peace and Conflict Studies at Colgate University. I am also in Peace and Conflict Studies, and fun fact, we are office neighbors. It's a delight for me to be able to interview him today about his new book, new-ish book, simply titled Libya. Published in 2018 in the Polity Press's Hotspots in Global Politics series. Jacob's book is part history, part political science, to guide readers through the intricate maze of foreign and Libyan actors and institutions that define modern-day Libya and its series of conflicts. His book is an accessible account of the complex political, security, and humanitarian crises that have engulfed the country. Africa's largest oil exporting country since the Arab Spring of 2011. Jacob's analysis centers on the roots of anti-Gaddafi revolution. He identifies new centers of power that coalesce in the wake of the collapse of the Gaddafi regime. And the more these rivals, coalitions vie for political power, political authority, and control over Libya's oil's wealth, the more they reached out to external actors who were playing their own quote-unquote great game in Libya and across the region. In the face of such a multifaceted, multi-layered complex crisis, Libya's conflict-free future is uncertain as the international community seems unable to bring peace, whatever that may mean, to this divided and conflict-ridden nation. Jacob Mundy, welcome. I'm, I'm really glad to be with you today. Very excited to be with you, too. Okay, this is going to be a good time. I um, wanted to start with a few words about yourself. What brought you to the study of Libya? And if you don't mind to share, is there anything in your personal or professional life that led you to a book on Libya, a career perhaps on Libya? Uh, well, I always like to think that one of my first geopolitical experiences was as a kid uh, going home from soccer practice, and we passed by some graffiti. Um, I believe this this must have been more in the early 1980s when when Gaddafi and uh, Reagan were <laughs> facing off in the Mediterranean. And someone had taken the time to write uh, F. Gaddafi, uh, spelling out that word, uh, on an overpass near Tacoma, Washington. And uh, uh, my reaction was, what does that say? Because I couldn't really catch it. And then my sister was like, is that how you spell F? And anyway, um, <laughs> but it, I think, you know, growing up American, right, there's 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 a sense in which I think Gaddafi's always been this kind of boogeyman in, in American politics. Um, uh, a kind of uh, useful foil, uh, for American foreign policy, for counterterrorism policy, and, and things of that sort. Uh, I think my real engagement with Libya came in sort of two ways. One was um, through my research on Western Sahara, which was the first book I wrote with Stephen Zunas, um, where Gaddafi's a, a kind of peripheral figure, um, 
has varying levels of importance. But if, if you don't understand Libya's role in the Western Sahara conflict, right, you're, you're sort of missing some dimensions. Um, I also, around that time when I began working on that book, I was also a country specialist volunteer with Amnesty USA, something you know a lot mm-hmm. about. Um, and I was part of the North Africa group. So we, we did a lot of work on Libyan uh, dissidents, you know, political figures. Uh, there was a case of uh, nurses who were blamed for an HIV outbreak, uh, things of that sort. So uh, for a while, um, you know, Libya under the Gaddafi regime had figured into uh, my research on dynamics in, in, in North Africa, international dynamics and 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 my my human rights work, where um, even with the the regime opening after you know say two thousand three, um, there was a kind of eagerness uh, of human rights groups to kind of get in the door. Mm-hmm. Uh, I saw some very interesting some interesting things there as well that uh, made me a little bit critical about uh, major human rights groups like Amnesty. So you had already received your. PhD by the time you were working with Amnesty, or was that something you did as a young person, a young quote unquote? Yeah, person? No, you're still young. <laughs> Youngish. Uh, no, that uh, that was mostly during the period where I was working um, on my my master's thesis, mm-hmm. uh, and then afterwards, um, I had a bit of a um, you know it wasn't it wasn't really a straight shot for me you know from undergraduate uh, to PhD. I had two years in the Peace Corps in Morocco. Um, I had a year after my master's uh, because I didn't get in by <laughs> graduate school that I wanted the, the first time around, and I had to sort of rethink my approach and what I was doing. Um, and and then I got a short stint with the International Crisis Group, um, and then I finally started my my PhD work. And and sort of in that interregnum period, I was I was uh, with Amnesty, and I kind of stayed. Um, with the group uh, almost until I got my job um, at Colgate. But mm-hmm. uh, um, it, my my concerns about the organization began to develop, I would say, right, right before the Arab Spring. Your concerns about Amnesty International, you mean? Yeah, how they, they had approached the Libya issue on at least, at least one key case where they seemed to prioritize country access over actually doing something about a political uh, opponent who was being effectively killed by the regime through denial of health care. So um, it kind of opened my eyes to <laughs> the, the ways in which institutions can prioritize things that um, seem contrary to their mandate. Yeah, for yeah. what it's worth, I was also a country specialist for Amnesty International USA for the Great Lakes region, and they would not allow... Rwandans, Burundians, Congolese people subject to the policies and actions of governments and international institutions to join. So I was like, well, that's it for me. We can talk about that another time. I did, <laughs> did want to add, like, of course, so you have this um, rich background, an intellectual background, but also a, like a practical background. What led you to peace and conflict studies, like a program like ours, rather than, say, I don't know, political science or political sociology, even history. I think your your Libya book is so historically rich in terms of the interpretive narrative that you lay out for us. 
Yeah, and it's less uh, historical than I had originally approached. I, my first proposal for the book, I think, or the second one, I can't remember, you know, it didn't even begin talking about 2011 until the final chapter. I mean, that seems right, but... <laughs> and the publisher was like, no, this is not what we want. Yeah, um, yeah I, I, I think in some ways I was determined... Um, well, I discovered academia, I think, late... Uh, it wasn't what I was initially thinking about when I, you know, began pursuing a master's in Middle East studies. Right? Mm-hmm. That was that was about that was about building upon experiences I had in the Peace Corps, uh, pursuing advanced language study, um, and doing the one thing you need to do to get a foot in the NGO world, which is have a master's degree, or at least <laughs> it seemed at the time. Yeah. Right. Um, I remember having this frightening, you know, conversation with the North Africa director for Human Rights Watch, and you know, where he said. You know, it took him, you know, 20 years to finally get to a, a, pot, a spot where, you know, he was he was happy in the human rights world. Um, and, and the job with the crisis group was initially something I, you know, was really excited about because of all the organizations I was interested at the time, the crisis group seemed to, to me the most interesting. And again, there I, I ran into a kind of uh, wall of other political agendas that made me realize that, you know, telling straight truth so the powerful wasn't the only thing that the crisis group was, was about. Mm-hmm. So um, I, I served my three-month contract and, and and moved on to my Ph.D. work. And in pursuing a Ph.D., I, th- I think it had just boiled down to I was interested in questions that people weren't necessarily going to be interested in. No, nobody cared about the Western Sahara issue. You know, no one, you know, NGOs weren't just going to hire you to, to research the Western Sahara issue. Nobody cared about what had happened in Algeria in the yeah. 1990s, even though it was more fresh in people's memory. Um, and so I, was, I thought, well, I think these issues are important. Um, I want to write about them. I want to learn about them. And, and so that's when I think a Ph.D. became important. But it, it was difficult to find a fit because of the marginalization of North African studies, especially pre-2011. Um, there's a strange thing where in North African studies, very few of the experts got to positions where they were could be mentors. Oh, you know, so you you often had to be mentored by a, a non-North African specialist, right? Um, and and finding a good institutional fit it just ended up for me being uh, the University of Exeter. Um, although I came out with a degree again with an area studies degree, which I think a lot of people will think is a, is a career killer. Uh, if you don't have a, a strict disciplinary uh, degree, um, but um, luckily I was able to find the right kind of program, and it, it ended, yeah, it ended up being peace and conflict studies at Colgate, precisely because I was so anti-disciplinarian mm-hmm. <laughs> or in, in, interdisciplinary, if you want to say. Sure. Uh, but that you know, I didn't want to. I didn't want to have my you know. Um, when you begin to see the ways in which, especially in political science and quantitative political science, the ways in which um, you know, the form begins to dictate the content, you you kind of realize that disciplines aren't, you know, are the only work they're doing is to further the discipline. Yeah, everything looks like a nail when all you have is a hammer. Something like that. Um, I was interested what you said about advanced language learning as you um, worked through the International Crisis Group and m- m- wove your way through your um, PhD. What language learning... If any, um, did you do perhaps you just picked it up, quote unquote, as a Peace Corps volunteer? Um, what's the importance of language learning in a, in a in a 
project like a book like Libya? Well, the Libya book, uh, you know, we can circle back to the, the sources and things like that. Sure. But um, one, one of the mandates of the book was actually to have a very uh, accessible um, scholarly apparatus. Um, and that kind of meant not excessively leaning on, on sources um, that the, the reader level, which is undergraduate and popular, that they could not use themselves. Um, so in, in a sense, if I had any of that information, it sort of functions in the background informing what happened or the, the field work I was able to do before things got really bad in 2014. Sure. Um, briefly, the Peace Corps, I got, I was sent to south, south southern Morocco, so I had to learn a, a dialect of Berber in addition to some sort of daily functional uh, Moroccan Arabic. Wow. Uh, I studied French as an undergrad to try to, you know, position myself as a, a volunteer for West Africa and the Peace Corps. The, in terms of my master's, I pursued a pretty aggressive uh, strategy to get to advanced um, standard Arabic. Um, so the Moroccan Arabic I had was useful for about two weeks <laughs> in standard <laughs> Arabic. Uh, but um, through intensive summer study programs, I was able to, and, and unfortunately funding streams that don't exist anymore, yeah. like FLAS. Uh, for the United States, I was able to get through advanced Arabic in, in two years, which is normally a four-year process, and then um, and then utilize that, yeah, in the field uh, with the crisis group, and then when I went to Algeria for my PhD work, um, and then in Libya. I should mention too that you do have a great book on um, Algeria that fits between this book and your book with Stephen Zunez. You're um, a prolific guy. Um, I wonder, too, you know, we've talked a little bit about language and about being in the Peace Corps, how these things you kind of accidentally but purposefully at the same time find yourself working in a place. Is there an ethic there? Is there some advice you would give to, you know, one of your own mentees or one of your students going to do research in Libya or Western Sahara or any of the places that are important to you? Yeah, well... I think what I've allowed field sites uh, to do to me, um, and this this maybe gets a little bit theoretical, but um, it, it it became a kind of way I could rationalize what had happened to me after the fact. But there's a great article by Timothy Mitchell about uh, area studies in relationship to social science disciplines, especially Middle East studies, and he talks about how the the way that things have sort of panned out in, in the 90s and beyond is various studies gets treated as sort of the place where theory, where you, where you go and test theory. Right. So, so anthropologists go to test their theories and political scientists and sociologists, uh, yada, yada. And, and I remember when I was in Algeria, and I'm trying to understand a, a civil war in Algeria, and, I, and I'm reading theoretical political science literature on civil wars. And and it, I you know I'm sitting in this tiny room in a you know an old Catholic institution in Algiers, and I just have this epiphany about you know that you know they're just playing with definitions and things like there's nothing real about what I'm reading in this literature on civil wars. And so some of it became like, how do I bring Algeria to the study of civil wars? You know, yeah. and then that that sort of ethos has followed me. Was you know uh, I went into Libya skeptical of the humanitarian intervention in 2011, but uh, wanting to understand how it had affected things on the ground. Sure. Um, 
and and again, I had one of these moments where um, I just felt like the the possibility um, not of theory to deconstruct Libya, but Libya to deconstruct theory was was immensely powerful. Um, and and so then I wanted I wanted you know, um, you know to take Libya you know to the study of the state and intervention and, and civil wars and things like that. That's um, a beautiful thing, and it segues me, I think, to my next question quite well. You mentioned sources a few minutes ago. Um, can you talk to us before we move to the substance of your book about sources? Um, I know just from a quick thumb through your book, you've used academic sources, non-academic sources. What what sources inform this accessible, which it truly is. It's a great read for um, anyone interested in the politics of the place, definitely not intended for an academic audience. So which authors historically have um, framed your thinking and which authors particularly frame this book? Yeah, the um, the number of sources is drastically reduced. Yeah. Uh, you know, I had I had maybe, um, you know, there was a there was a pretty tough word limit with this series, right? To keep to keep the book digestible for a popular audience. I went over that word limit anyway, um, but but you know, tried to tame it down as much as I could. What was that word um, limit like? Seventy thousand? Maybe it is a very tight book. I think they wanted seventy. I think they got eighty-five. Okay, good man. <laughs> and that and that was down from you know ninety something sure, on sure. the initial uh, first draft. Um, yeah, the um, well, that's the thing is, is so I had I had visited Libya in 2012 as part of my first um, research as a you know, tenure track professor, and so and I was trying to d- debate whether or not to do the standard monograph or to do something even more ambitious by incorporating new case studies to the Algeria case study, mm-hmm. um, and and the appeal of Libya was. That it had lined up in certain ways with, with you know, um, at least one aspect of if I could say I have an intellectual project <laughs> is you know foreign interventions and civil wars, but more importantly, you know, the U.S. role uh, in in North Africa and what, what does that say about the U.S. role in the world uh, more generally? Um, and so, going to Libya, it was you know this perfect example again of like you know the the abuse of humanitarian justifications for uh, regime change and all of these issues which we'd seen in Iraq and um, and then debated in Darfur and things of that sort um, were right there and I was like well you know I, I you know I definitely want to see if this is going to be a, a new major field site for me uh, and, I, and I really did think it was but then um, the trends became uh, very bad, and I was able to return for a conference in 2013. Um, but that was it was a very short visit, and soon thereafter, it just became untenable. Uh, and the international presence presence really just kind of departs in 2014. And then and then I began to think about because I had decided that I was just going to do uh, a single monograph on Algeria, and then think about what I could do with Libya, and then. And then Libya became a kind of historical project for me. I thought, well, you know, if, you know, contemporary Libya is very difficult, and maybe, maybe a study of the Libyan state would be, would be more interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, and and 
viable because <laughs> you could actually access archival materials. Um, you know, you could hang out in British archives until Libya opened up again right. uh, and see what happened. Um, you know, besides keeping in contact with uh, people you met in field work, which is always important. Um, yeah, the I think the most profound sources were actually Libyans that had affected my thinking um, really about the nature of state power under Gaddafi and uh, what what was actually going on and, and getting away from these caricatures of, you know, this place that has, you know, no civil society and lives under, you know, complete total course of domination and seeing the the nuances to all that. And that I think I, I learned most from Libyan authors. It's a, a great circle back to to your um, story here, coming back from soccer practice, you know, the, the narrative counter narrative of Gaddafi. <laughs> That's a great way to segue to the substance of the book. It is, um, it's gorgeous. I really enjoyed reading it. I've also, just so readers, our listeners know, I wrote a single country book on Rwanda that also focuses on the state. And it, it's surprising, but yet not surprising, how unimaginative state structures can be. And it led me to wonder, you know, is this a case of direct imperialism through Sanusi and the way you write about that history? Or are we talking about just like a run-of-the-mill settler colonization? Um, but before we get to that, I just wanted to... Um, let readers know that it's just 220 pages long. It's definitely a history. It does detail, I think, beautifully the different actors. And it can be a little bit tricky to understand between the foreign interference, you know, slash intervention, depending on your um, perspective. Those who come in because of the oil, you know, the resource court curse, and then just the range of regional and like tribal militias almost. I hate to use the word tribal, but I think that's probably the right word in this case. And then, of course, it's a book, as you just described, about state power at the federal and local level and who has it, who wants it, how do they get it. And, of course, this is all managed through armed conflict. So what is, to your mind, that's how I understood your book, how do you as the author, what's the puzzle that frames your book? I suppose it's the role of the U.S. in North Africa, or is there something a bit more you wanted to add? Yeah, the um, puzzle. I get, I get <laughs> the language of puzzles. I, I get caught up with because it's so often used in political science. Um, yeah, puzzles are two dimensional and they're flat. I know yeah. it doesn't do the work, but I think it's an interesting way to yeah. enter. Yeah. Yeah. No, I think I, I. Yeah, I do think that they're trying to understand. You know, and this is just sort of basic, right? With all the kind of work that we do is. Continuities and discontinuities. Mm-hmm. Um, so, uh, you know, what, where is there really a break with um, how society was organized under Gaddafi and how it reorganized itself after 2011? I mean, if I was going to say that, 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 that there was any overarching goal of the book yeah. um, was, to, was to sketch that. And recognizing the limits that I wasn't there on the ground, so the, it does, I think, get to um, that. There's a certain altitude yeah. of, of my perspective um, that others, um, including some you know great Libyan analysts who've emerged in recent years, uh, can provide that nuanced detail. So what I thought my book would do was, was try to show respect for all the brave field work that people have been trying to do. 
uh, by you know, heavily citing and acknowledging where I could, uh, you know, my intellectual uh, debt to them, mm-hmm. you know, but um, in, in many ways, this is, this is a work of synthesis where I'm trying to see, well, what, what do we know um, and what can we, how can we make sense of what's gone on and get away from a, um, you know, narrative of, you know, chaos and, you know, or narrative of, of revolution and things of that sort and see, see what's really going on. I think that is um, a number one, a great answer, but it's also what I understand your book to be doing as well. You're really showing us that events, you know, the um, Arab Spring of 2011, the Benghazi attacks that resulted in the death of the American ambassador, uh, Christopher Stevenson. These things don't come out of nowhere. There's a broader historical arc that can explain these so-called dramatic events and when you begin to theorize an event for a general audience, you know, you are doing an incredible, I think, academic service of synthesis, um, as you know. It's, I think, um, yeah, you hit the nail on the head there, buddy. Um, oh, thanks. Yeah. But I wonder, just um, to start to break down some of your ideas for our listeners, you speak of the great game, and I chose that language in my introduction. What What is the great game, and what is the great game in Libya? Seems to be in in your case a critique of the failed state framework, but maybe I read too much into it. Yeah, the I mean the obvious reference is to the contest over Afghanistan yeah. in the late eighteen hundreds, uh, mainly with Russia and Great Britain. Uh, but what we've seen in Libya is <clears throat> from the get go really just. Um, and you know, maybe as background, I would say that you know my perspective is you know heavily informed by Bertrand Body and the idea of the imported state, um, mm-hmm. and the extent that if we're really committed to understanding, you know, for example, patron-client networks, that we have to realize these extend beyond national borders and, and things of that sort. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, anyone who studies, you know. West Africa, North Africa, uh, anywhere in the Francophone sphere, right, understands this this very well, the right. internationalization of patient-client networks. Um, and so in Libya, yeah, it was about not just understanding the, the domestic dynamics, but how there, there was a kind of uh, differential interaction between um, what was going on, or at least, you know, um, in the in the kind of mechanical sense, but not not necessarily deterministic, that um, that there were machinations going on uh, around Syria and the Gulf and Turkey and then Russia, the United States, um, and and so these linked up with dynamics inside uh, what was going on uh, in Libya, and I think obviously one of the things I was pushing back against was um, a kind of uh, leftist critique you would see where. There's an effort to to delegitimize, you know, the 2011 uprising um, as if it was entirely manufactured by outside forces, um, and to show that no, that there was legitimate, you know, uh, movements, there was legitimate grievances, and this had, this had already happened. You know, people in Libya had been trying to organize and do things, you know, domestically and in the diaspora, and uh, you know, protests weren't. Um, a common feature like Algeria or Tunisia or Egypt before the the uprising, but there, there was you know there were dynamics to be to be following, right? Yeah. Uh, and so again, yeah, nothing nothing kind of comes out of thin air, right? If you think Bouazizi started the Arab Spring, you know, 
<laughs> you're missing a <laughs> page or two. Yeah, yeah no, that's the most ridiculous thing, you know. Um, so, and yet journalists yeah, report it that way. Well, and academics report it that well, way. Well, I didn't want to say um, so. I thought you might. So, thank you. <laughs> yeah, I mean, but you know, it's important to realize academics get things wrong. If you asked, you know, surveyed Middle East scholars in 2010 and say, what's the most stable regime in the Middle East? They probably all would have said Tunisia. Yeah. That's my next question. Tunisia, Libya, are these African countries? Are these, like, what, what does this weird UN typology of regions do for how we understand Libya? Yeah. The, um, the interesting thing for me is um, if you go back to the work of, so like take the, the myth of continents, right? Mm-hmm. And, um, and we think about, you know, what is, what is imaginative geography, what's natural geography, uh, and things of that sort. And I would probably be more um, akin to not sort of saying, well, you know, a country is or is not African. Yeah. Uh, but to say, you know, what, what are the uses, political, sociological, economic, of regionalization, dividing regions, things of that sort. Um, because when you're in North African studies, you're in this very weird position of being um, in some ways on the margins of Middle East studies. So that's, that's changed in recent years, especially to the extent that you know Tunisia has become a kind of um, laboratory for political science sure, you yeah. know, of, of extreme proportions. But also, even within African studies, you kind of have a, a, a strange uh, position um, where um, you, you don't quite feel at home at at ASA because there's really not that much going on, um, and yet uh, you're you know a part of Africa. And when you think about how these divisions developed, at least within the Western Academy, um, there's a kind of interesting period where I think it's all kind of up for grabs uh, after World War II, like how regionalization is going to work. Um, and so on and so forth. Why, why do we use the term Middle East and not Southwest Asia? Things of things of that sort. And then the categories begin to become reified, uh, and I would argue racialized. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think um, you know the the Middle East now is, is more understood as a racial um, object than it ever was in the past, because the Middle East used to include Greece and Somalia. You know, right. you, you used to lump to get used to lump together peoples. On a on a purely geographical basis, not on a supposed, you know, ethno religious <laughs> basis, right? Um, sure. And so, so again, yeah, that gets to thinking about, um, you know, how how we begin to regionalize, um, and what what work is regionalization doing before we even begin to speak about, it, which I think needs to be examined. So, yeah. I love that answer in part because of the way that Gaddafi himself made good use or tried to make good use, depending on the issue with the African Union. And I found it fascinating how you wrote about his ability to pivot to regional organizations um, based on the issues of the day. And it leads me to my next question. And to what extent, if at all, does Libya's geographic location there in the Mediterranean shape its politics? Um, notably because they're shaped by the presence of oil. Yeah, that's, um, for me, 
one of the really interesting questions uh, as I've tried to branch more into, you know, history and political economy and geography, um, I think in a lot of my earlier work, uh, especially the book on Algeria, it, it really worked at a kind of theoretical level uh, yeah. without really grasping material realities so much. And that was something I was trying to bring back into my research, uh, partially because the challenge I, I got with the Algeria book was, <laughs> we, okay, it was very clear what kind of analysis you, you don't support when it comes to civil wars, terrorism, or atrocities. Uh, but so, so what kind of analysis would you be in favor of? And so trying to, to think about, well, um, you know, what does that analysis look like? And Libya is a very interesting place to explore it because sometimes it seems like a very kind of contingent state, um, that historically Western Libya, Tripolitania is much more in the the orbit of Tunis uh, in terms of economy and society and culture. Mm-hmm. Um, Benghazi and, and Cyrenaica is much more uh, much more of a backwater of um, Cairo and Egypt, you would say. Um, at the same time, the Senussis had developed a kind of vertic- vertical regionality by connecting the region of Lake Chad uh, to Cyrenaica. Um, and so there's these different senses of which um, Libya is a part of different um, geographical configurations historically. And it really is just because of the, the way that colonization panned out that the Ottomans are crunched down to this one last territorial holding <laughs> And it's that historical contingency that really just kind of gives us uh, the Libyan state that we see today. And it's even, you know, and then then you have the weird sort of geographical coincidence that oh, this also is it's all sitting on a reservoir of oil and gas, you know, of huge proportions. Right? So there's um, this contingency to, to Libya that's really interesting as well. Um, and it, it could lead to some interesting, I think, counterfactual speculation. You know, that what if what if Libya had been partitioned, you know, in 1951 instead of granted independence, you know, well in advance of a lot of its neighbors, you know, that um, very, when you think about uh, the ways in which decolonization proceeded in in a very sort of like, you know, agonized way in Algeria and, um, you know, these sort of efforts in Tunisia and Morocco to make sure that the right regime took power, there was, you know, you know, the the way that Libya was granted independence, so very nominally, um, given the American and British presence, right? It's kind of a, kind of a fascinating story. I think you um, captured this story really well because you have this sense in reading your text of like this foundational narrative. There's a founding narrative of how Libya came to be. And that's when I made that joke a few minutes ago about, are we talking about direct imperialism or settler colonization? We're talking about both, actually, in part because of its geographic location and that counterfactual that you raise, like, what if it had been partitioned? That's um, definitely um, something to think about, because one thing your analysis makes clear is that this political territory is so diffuse and so topographically different that it's difficult to imagine some sort of like nation state. There's no nation state of Libya, is there? I think there. I think there is, and I think that's one of the things I remarked about. Um, you, regardless of all their divisions, you know, regional separatism is a very, very 
a small percentage. You will see federalists, yeah. people who want more autonomy, people who want the oil wealth shared more evenly across all regions, um, including the, the very distant Kufa region close to Sudan. And um, But there's, there's an amazing triumph of nationalist ideology in Libya that you can um, get all of these disparate identities and you know, bring them together. And, and as much as they revolt against, you know, the identity that, you know, Gaddafi tried to impose, sure. they, they, co- they coalesce around um, the Libyanness uh, of their country and the people, although there's some important things that happen at the margin um, in terms of fights over citizenship, and which is sort of like who gets, who gets to share in the oil wealth. You know, right. our Tuaregs really Libyan, or our Tebu really Libyan, uh, our Tawergans, who are um, uh, dark-skinned uh, African origin, but from centuries ago, right? So right. basically Libyan, right? Uh, but there's questions about that um, that are raised uh, by white, <laughs> by Don Arabs in the, in the north. Um, but, but again, I, I think the other the thing that often gets um, overlooked, I, you know, because we naturalize identities and nationalism uh, so easily and we mm-hmm. don't even think about um, that, um, you know, you raised a question about the applicability of the concept of tribes, and I, it was really something I struggled with, um, you know, because the framing will be like, you know, is it, is it you know, um, a nation with tribes or a tribal nation, you know, right. things like that. And it, it doesn't take too much historical analysis to begin to realize, like, how quickly even certain tribes, you know, were reified into, you know, these sort of from time immemorial social objects. Yeah, essentialist. Um, and and that the, there's a relationship there even with imperialism, whether it's Ottoman or Italian or British. So would you say this sense of Libyanness that you just described and all its complexity with regions and races and tribes and so on, is that a... a a political project that is domestic, or is it a strategic move by political elites against a near constant international presence? Well, I think it, it, it's something that bounds what the politics that we see that the the struggles take place within a framework of nationalism. So, what kind of nation is Libya going to be? Will it be? Um, you know, dominated by the Muslim Brotherhood? Will it be led by a military dictator? Will it be um, something that's, uh, you know, profoundly regionalized so that local authorities, which often have uh, primacy in many areas, are given the autonomy that um, they need to run their own affairs? Uh, or, you know, will it, you know, a return of the Gaddafi regime, which, I mean, there's a constituency that, that is, you know, is calling for that, yep. you know, but, um, you know, there's no, there's no radical imaginaire that, you know, is saying, oh, we should, <laughs> you know, we should divide up into like three independent states. And it's usually you see that from outsiders saying, you know, the only way to save Libya is to divide it, right? Um, like we saw in Iraq, you know, the only way to divide save Iraq is, is to divide it um, without really taking into consideration that, you know, what were the international processes that got Iraq right. or Libya to that point where you have to divide it, right? And I think 
um, David Campbell's work on Bosnia is really fascinating in this respect. That what, what does it speak about, you know, the international imaginaire that says uh, dividing people into, you know, different states or statelets is the solution to, you know, crises of identity. No, imagine. I mean, it's the same in um, even a tiny, tiny country like Rwanda. Let's just give them two separate polities. Okay. Yeah. It's um, it is a lack of imagination. I like I like the way that you frame that, and it leads me to um something that um, I did struggle with a little bit in your book, and maybe this is a me problem, not a you problem. What is the conceptual difference in the Libyan context between riot? rebellion and revolution and i ask because you do begin to work in in the book to make a great case about the um, power and the authority and the the reach of revolutionary martyrdom to begin to explain you know post-2011 militia politics so in your mind is there a difference and does it matter between riot rebellion and revolution where I think we've seen the most debate is the, the question of revolution, um, which has several dimensions, and then the question of, of civil war, mm-hmm. uh, especially both if you're thinking about the year 2011. And it's not just you know, Libyans who raise issues about whether or not, you know, was, was it a civil war in 2011? Was it a revolution? And often where your politics lie in, those, in that period will have some way of informing your opinion about what to, what to characterize those as. And I think the revolution of 2011 was important uh, for the revolutionaries to call it a revolution because it had to be a reappropriation of the revolutionary discourse of the Gaddafi regime, that it was, you know, one of these efforts to, you know, institutionalize uh, a revolution and that, you know, everything was a reference to the 19th 69 revolution and the subsequent revolution of the state into the Jamaharia system. Mm-hmm. And so reappropriation by revolutionary militias uh, was very important. Um, but, but then that became, in its own way, a legitimating framework for all kinds of things, uh, both good, though, though mostly bad, you know, from the kind of looting of the state, things that we saw initially, uh, to saying, you know, in the name of the revolution, we can, um, you know, we can quarantine certain villages that we think are too pro-Gaddafi or not pro-revolutionary enough and, right. and things of that sort. Um, I don't think there would be less a disagreement about the term civil war being applied after 2014, but it still remains an issue uh, in 2011. And what, what I find interesting about uh, the scholarly community that has engaged with Libya, but also the one that has emerged since 2011, is the extent to which they themselves seem to be involved in this politics of naming that um, I, at one point, um, to a kind of um, uh, think tank gun for hire type mm-hmm. person, I said, I said something about the 2011 civil war. Uh, and he got very offended that I didn't, I didn't um, call it a, a revolution. Interesting. And said, oh, why do you you know, why do you call it that? I said, well, because there, there was another, there was another side fighting, you know, for what, for what they believed in. Um, and he, you know, and he said, well, who are your sources? And I said, oh, I, you know, I talked to <laughs> these people and you know, he just, he just couldn't believe it. But, 
Yeah, that's that, that is, cringeworthy. <laughs> yeah, but I mean, yeah, I think there's been one of the one of the things, and this might be too much to unpack, but is the um, I think in these issues, I mean, you and I have talked about this in Rwanda, but there becomes a, a kind of self-identification with um, a country or a conflict or a historical moment uh, among academics that um, maybe speaks more to their political sensibilities than, that, than to their understanding of like what's actually going on. I think that's probably exactly right, the ways in which certain events are used as foils for individuals' politics, like thinking, for example, of the relationship between Rwanda and Israel. It's very tricky to critique either of those countries in these ways because they suffered genocide. I don't know if a state can suffer genocide. People can, and that's a different context. And I think what was so fascinating to me about your book and through the framework of revolution, revolutionary martyrdom and the care you took not to label things civil war until a certain point um, was one of the strength of, strengths of your analysis, to my mind. But it did also raise a question for, for me. What took Libyans so long? And which Libyans? Who, who, who revolted? Who's in the, like, who are the actors here? And what are the outside, I don't know, supporters, critics? I'm not sure how I would frame it. Yeah, with the 2011, um, it's very difficult to imagine it happening without the the precedent of Tunisia and right. Egypt, um, which again brings into these sort of contingencies um, that make deterministic analysis you know, very difficult. Right. The um, the thing, though, I mean, and again, this is you know partially because Libya was so. Um, off the radar for most people, or just totally inaccessible as as a research site, unless unless you were Libyan or you uh, were from a country that wasn't, you know, um, boycotting sanctions, Libya yeah. in some way. Yeah. So I mean, it still it still has this sort of air of like you know North Korea on the Mediterranean sort of thing that's impeding any kind of you know actual analysis. So thinking about like, well, you know, what are the actual Social configurations. What um, what are the reform elements? You know, what are the the revolutionary elements uh, opposing the regime? Where are they located? You know, uh, is it important that a lot of the voices for revolutionary change are located mostly outside of the country, often because they have to be because right. they're um, you know couldn't exist otherwise. But then the questions that often aren't asked, and we mentioned this earlier, right, is this idea of um, the only way one could imagine the Gaddafi regime was either it, you know, the durability of the regime is, you know, some resort to an argument about, you know, overwhelming coercion, you know, that, you know, it was just, it was just too effective at cracking down right. when needed, uh, or the, the rentier theory that, well, the, the population is more, more or less placated because, uh, the oil wealth uh, is being used to build a, a welfare state. Now, that's now there's certainly uh, the amount of like physical infrastructural state building in Libya is quite extraordinary. And the things that I saw in 2012 were uh, very impressive, especially by you know North African standards, but even by uh, world class standards. I remember sitting in a, 
um, you know, you know, sort of <laughs> a very uh, isolated desert town, not a large population, but a technical college had been built there, and I was sitting in an auditorium that rivaled any university I'd been in the world. Oh, wow. You know? and so, so that that experience, those experiences made me realize um, that there was a project of Gramscian hegemony in Libya by the Gaddafi regime, and that, you know, we often hear about the sort of more fanatical elements or things that are almost, almost treat, you know, the regime like a a quasi-monarchical structure. I mean, right. you see the same things in Mubarak's Egypt and um, Ben Ali, to a certain extent, in Tunisia, but the idea that, you know, there will be a succession every moment. Uh, and even the international community played into this in terms of, you know, cultivating Saif uh, al-Islam as the rightful heir of Libya. Mm-hmm. You know, it wasn't just Libya that was doing that. It was, you know, BP and the British government and the Americans. And so, so... Thinking more about um, that a certain social order was cultivated in Libya, but it wasn't just through coercion and uh, rent, but that there, there was a project of hegemony um, that we have to think about in the context of a society that is divided, but not just not you know not divided only according to the way the state wants it to be divided but divided uh, along other axes. And those could be, you know, tribal, if you want to think about critically about that term, but even more geographical. I think it's more about the locality necessarily than the tribe in terms of a lot of the dynamics that go on. And um, and the the other problem with tribal analysis in Libya is often it's applied to wholesale ethnic groups like Tuaregs. The Tuaregs are a tribe. We know the Tuaregs are a very large ethnic group. and so getting back to that, yeah, I would say um, needing to, you know, think, you know, Libya less as a total aberration mm-hmm. in terms of how socio-political cultures are created, what's the political economy behind all that, um, and think about it as, um, I don't know if I want to say quite normal, but it's something that's at least quite comprehensible if we can get beyond the kind of uh, intellectual or ideological baggage that's been created by the, the international um, pariahization of Libya in the 80s and 90s. Oh, that's really interesting that you end on that, because it makes me think, too, about something that is, features prominently in your book, and that is militia politics. Um, and you see how different militias across different ge- geographies, different ethnic groupings, different tribes, and so on, um, vie for power. And it, uh, one thing I thought you managed really well in the book was the sort of challenges, perhaps even inability of militias to provide humanitarian aid or support in this creation of political culture, in this creation of peace, quote unquote. And I wondered, you know, since you just described the way the institutions of the central state are weak, I'm going to say, and civil society mechanisms for accountability are practically non-existent. How can a militia govern? Is that a goal? Is it not a goal? Well, I think militias can govern and have governed in Libya um, in different ways. Some, I think, organically emerge out of communities and represent 
yeah. uh, the interests of those communities. I think some organically emerge within communities and see it as a role to oppose <laughs> the interests yeah. of those communities. Um, some militias are not operating in what they would be considered sort of their, their home turf, um, that they're almost uh, like foreign armies. I mean, this was one of the issues that uh, earlier on was um, that Tripoli was almost occupied by by militias from, from other areas who were playing a game to kind of see who could uh, control key infrastructures and um, government ministries and, and things of that sort. Uh, and so Libya, the capital, Tripoli, becomes a kind of pawn of uh, these external militia forces in this new game in which the, the locals often don't feel they have a voice until they form their own militias in response. Um, but and then you also get just you know very predatory militias that are more more about black market activities like human human smuggling, oil yeah. smuggling, things of that sort, um, which has a continuity with the political economy under Gaddafi, and um, that there's not a huge <laughs> change in you know right. the a lot of a lot of black marketeers just got use guns now instead of uh, operating more under the radar. But, yeah, it's hard to say what the bigger picture is because uh, the bigger picture is you have to go to each locale and try to figure out what's going on. And, you know, is there a, a local council that has some leverage over the militia? Um, or is it a locale that is being surrounded by uh, militias that have a intercommunal grievance with, with that? With that militia. So um, the only difference I would say between sort of when my analysis takes place and when um, what's happened in more recent years, because I had to sort of end things in early 2018, yes. is I think a, a more a lot of consolidation of militias. And the bigger question there would be, are these consolidations, like, are they durable or are they consolidations that only work uh, in the context of the way that the conflict has really kind of um, turned into a, a real binary contest. Um, and so is each binary a stable binary? Right, right, uh, right. You know, is each unit going to hold together or, you know, or can they fracture apart under certain circumstances? And so that's um, I mean, one of the exciting things about being in this series is they ask for updates on a regular basis oh, so good. Uh, i'll get to i'll get to revisit things and, and update things um and because it, it the changes i think are, are quite important in recent years no i think and you have um a contribution to make since 2018 in the way that political power is of course shaped by the militias the size and reach in their area as you noted the verticality um, their respective roles in the revolution, and of course, whether or not they have access to these oil resources, um, which I think your book does really well. And one thing we haven't really talked about, and I want to start to wrap up since I've held you here for a long time, is diaspora politics. Um, you've mentioned sort of in passing that there's a active group of Libyans outside the country. Um, what is their role today? Uh, it's, I I wouldn't say it's a unified role. Um, sure. and one of one of the things, I mean, as the the political cleavage has become a lot clearer in terms of you know there's now just really kind of 
the one big question <laughs> that's, that's hanging over Libyans, uh, which is either the Khalifa Haftar question. Um, and, the, and then you've seen, I think, opinions internationally follow suit, that they, they also get kind of cleaved in half. And so there's, um, on social media, there's a kind of unfortunate, um, you know, everyone's opinions are being assessed for their um, sentiments one, one way or the other. Um, and then it gets even more complicated with the entrance of social media actors uh, from the outside powers that are interfering. So there's been a huge entrance of uh, Emirati and Saudi-based oh, interesting. You know, kind of social media platforms. Yeah. And uh, and now uh, the, the amount that, you know, Turkish media has flooded my Google news alerts on Libya is, oh, interesting. is quite astounding. Yeah. It's really astounding in recent months because, you know, Turkey has waded into the conflict in a very big way. Um, and so I think there, there are some groups that are doing uh, really good work in trying to, to raise awareness. And I think um, one of the great things you discover um, nowadays, uh, but also because of the, the contentious politics that makes it seem urgent, um, is the, the amount of um, really amazing and compelling Libyan voices that are out there and are trying to be heard because because they they feel that the situation uh, needs a lot more polyvocality, you know, um, you know, it's almost I would say it would be, I would challenge any journalist <laughs> to write an article about Libya today and not talk about you know the the high level geopolitics, um, which is of course what my book is about. But yeah. I think um, one of the important things um, that diasporas can do, I think, is yeah, bring that bring that to the table uh, and not just uh, play into the, the framing that I think is, uh, I think there's a frame trap that Libya is stuck in and uh, it needs to be broken. No, that's pretty interesting that you say it that way because I didn't pick up from the book um, that the diaspora and those in the diaspora, the different factions in the diaspora are seeking regime, regime change per se. They're seeking a role in the regime. And of course, um, that leads us to polyvocality. Multiple voices from multiple perspectives always makes for a rich study, which yours definitely is. And I want to um, ask you in the last little bit here about your cover art. So you have a real way with covers, I feel like. Um, we have um, a soldier. Is it a government soldier? Red Beret. He's a Reed. rebel. He's a rebel. It's, a, a it's torn, from 2011, yeah. Yeah, torn flag. Yeah. A big plume of yeah, oil they, smoke, the the red sand of the desert. What's well, how did you choose this image, and why? Well, I think I think we always struggle because the images are so reductive, um, and and uh, in my case, I've had three, now three book covers with uh, men with guns uh, and uh, head wrappings on, and so. I think it one one it was um, and again this is again a thing where form begins to, to dictate uh, mm-hmm. how you think about content. But uh, the the book is a very um, tall book, so you have to find an image that that's tall mm-hmm. um, that works, and so that sets a lot of limits. Um, you have you know obviously pricing and things of that sort. But I think these elements for me the the armed conflict. The nationalism and the political economy, yeah. which were 
um, you know, I, I couldn't get like a NATO jet <laughs> in the frame of the photo. Um, <laughs> but, you know, if I could have had something, you know, but I, I think it, it's understood that, you know, oil as an international commodity speaks to um, this as well, right? That you have these three things that you're trying to keep in focus as you move through the analysis. Yeah, it's a really compelling um, cover. It's a great book. Um, I think everyone should read it just for an example of how to do interpretive history. History, of course, is an act of interpretation, but to be explicitly um, plain and, you know, open to different interpretations, I think your your work really sets a bar for how we might study these single cases as theoretical cases, as you mentioned in the beginning. Um, and I want to leave you with this question. What are you working on now? I know we're in a pandemic. Fieldwork is challenging. Fieldwork is central to the work that you do. Are you working on any, anything right now? And if so, what is it? The question you had asked earlier about how we think about geography, mm-hmm. is, is Libya Africa? Is, is, is the Middle East in Africa? Um, I am starting a project um, I was actually supposed to do um, more archival work. I'd done some archival work in France and Tunisia, and then I was going to do a big, a big month of archival work in in Great Britain. Um, the The project I'm calling it right now is a theory of the Middle East, um, and the basic idea is to think about how we've thought about the Middle East, but, but how the Middle East came to be this place that we think about as extraordinary in terms of um, authoritarianism, conflict, terrorism, and social conservatism. And I want to make it a very political economic story. Okay. Um, Not just a story about ideas, but um, how the Middle East came to assume a certain position within geopolitics, within the global economy, really over the course of the last 50 years. Um, and to think about what's the relationship between um, ideas of the Middle East and what, what the Middle East is and has become in, in a material sense. Uh, but I think that this is going to be a, a very, <laughs> it's going to take a while. It's going to take a, a while. Project. Yeah, yeah. But it sounds fascinating. And of course, it's so interesting to think about a theory of the Middle East as the um, American election is coming up and um, the current president has been pretty interesting in his foreign relations, so maybe such a theory is um, long overdue. Jacob, I want to thank you for your time, for your openness. It's been really great to, to learn from you. Any final comments you might want to make before we um, end our time? No, thank you for the excellent questions. Yeah, my pleasure. This is the uh, New Books Network, and you've been listening to um, Jacob Mundy talk about his book on Libya. See you next time.